Hi, I'm Joshua Wasselsu from Resolve Legal Group, and you're listening to the Divorce Magazine Canada podcast. Hey, are you or someone you care about considering, dealing with, or being through a divorce or separation? Well, you're in the right place. You don't have to do this alone. There are people who care and want to help. Hi, I'm Dina Court, an author, blogger, publisher, and empowerment coach. Thanks for joining me on the Divorce Magazine Canada podcast. You are going to hear from our team of experts and professionals how to navigate this difficult transition in your life easier, more efficiently, and with better outcomes. Did you know we host online divorce resource groups that are free to attend and everyone is welcome? Check out the links in our show notes and be sure and join us. We love bringing experts to you. Please refer to our terms of service available on our website, divorcemagazinecanada.com and stay tuned at the end for the legal language. Ready? Here we go. Hey, welcome. It is episode number 50. Technically, there's 52 episodes out, but there were a couple bonuses that I didn't number. So welcome to episode number 50. I'm excited to bring back a guest that we had on episode number 42 about child support. Now that is a topic that can instill a lot of fear and concern if you aren't sure how it's calculated or what it really is. Now, spousal support is our topic today and Joshua's gonna tell us about how that's calculated, what it is, and a little more about it so you know what you're getting in for. And then of course, if you have specific questions related to your own situation, then please reach out and get specific help and advice from legal sources that uh, can talk to you specifically about what you're dealing with. So let's meet Joshua now and find out more about spousal support. Welcome back, Joshua. I am really happy to have you sharing information about support. And if anyone's interested, please make sure to go back to episode number 42, where Joshua tells us more about child support, how that is calculated, what it is, what it means, how it could you know, be something that affects you. And today he's back to give us some insight and information around spousal support. And from what I've understood from our conversations, it's not quite as black and white, cut and dry and easily determined as child support. So welcome back. Please tell us about yourself and, oh, this topic of spousal support. Let's jump in. Sounds good. So yeah, thanks for having me again. I'm uh, glad to be back. I love giving these talks. Um, If anybody hasn't listened to the previous podcast, I'll let them know that uh, I've been practicing in family law now for about five and a half years, all of it with Resolve Legal Group. And that's since I was called to the bar. Um, so what we primarily focus on is divorce and separation. Um, those are the two big things in family law. And whether you are formally married or whether you are uh, living in a partnership, which a lot of people call common law, but the law technically defines in Alberta as an adult interdependent partnership, Um 
the approach to calculating support is essentially the same. For married people, we of course call it spousal support, and for non-married partners, we call it partner support. But gen generally, the approach to uh, doing the calculations and what the law requires is essentially the same in, in both cases. So um, before we jump into uh, the law part of it, what I thought I'd mention to your listeners is they're probably going to have this question while I'm talking for the next few minutes of, well, where do we get the information to calculate this? And I thought, well, I'll talk about the disclosure of financial information at the end of this, um, just because of, I, I have talked about it in the child support podcast. So if people don't want to listen to me talk about that twice, that's fine. So um, spousal support, partner support, I will likely just call it spousal support for the purposes of our chat today. Um, it's also uh, sometimes known as alimony. That's not really a term that's used in Canada. It's more an American term. Oh, but interesting. It, uh, it means essentially the, the same thing. So when you have uh, left your spouse and you are now on your own, there isn't any automatic entitlement to receive spousal support. It's not like just because you left and you were the lower income, income earning partner, the other partner needs to pay you a certain amount. Um, there's a kind of three stages to determining spousal support. And the first hurdle that you have to get over is uh, demonstrating that you have an entitlement. And an entitlement can be uh, demonstrated in three ways. Uh, the first way, which is quite rare, is called contractual support. So if you had a prenup or a postnup or a cohabitation agreement that you signed um, prior to the separation, sometimes those will set out what type of support is payable in the event of a separation. Um, unfortunately, prenups and postnups are very, seem to be uh, quite rare. So this is a not a very common way to receive an entitlement to support. But if you have that, then that is going to govern what type of support you receive. The second way of receiving support is called non-compensatory. I'm personally not a, a fan of that term because I don't think it is terribly clear. I often refer to it as need-based support. Um, it's not the technical term, but I think it just helps people understand it more. And so, could you repeat that, please? The what support you usually refer to it as? Uh, needs-based. Needs-based, okay. Yeah. So if you've been in a relationship and uh, at some point in the relationship, you've developed uh, an illness or or um, you were in a bad accident or for whatever reason, you just you're unable to provide uh, income to meet your own needs. And then a separation happens. Generally, what the uh, case law and the federal spousal support advisory guidelines say is Two people previously made promises to each other to love and care for each other. And now that the separation has happened, before the state steps in and provides social assistance to somebody in need, the former partner has somewhat of a duty to actually support the, the, the other partner to meet that need. So it's not a it's not an absolute, it's just that's the the theory of needs-based support, that the former partner should be providing it before the state provides it. Um, again, it's not terribly common, and uh, what need means can vary. I mean, 
Um, this is where sometimes you hear the, the phrase, the lifestyle I've become accustomed to. So if somebody was living in a very, very, very high income household, and suddenly they are now on their own and they're working a, a minimum wage job, there may be a need, or maybe minimum wage isn't a good example. They're working a, a $60,000 a year job. Um, that is likely enough to pay rent and buy groceries, but it might not be reasonable to expect a person who was living on $2 million a year to suddenly go to that overnight. The third way you can meet entitlement is the most common, and it's uh, called compensatory support. And just like it sounds, the intention behind this is to compensate the partner for some type of a loss that they had during the course of the relationship. The most common um, way that this can be demonstrated is if um, the parties decided that they were gonna have children, and then after the children uh, were born, they made a decision that one of them was going to remove themselves from the workforce to stay at home and look after the children. And now 10 years go by, and over that 10 years, the party who was in the workforce continued to work, continued to advance their career, continued to climb the corporate ladder. They, they've had 10 years of growth in their job and presumably a growth in their income as a result. The party that stayed at home uh, for those 10 years, if they're now separated, has not had that opportunity. They are starting back where they were um, right. when they left the workforce. So the idea behind compensatory support here is we're going to compensate the party that stayed at home for the loss of the ability to grow in their career. So support can be paid for that reason. There's a lot of ways to demonstrate compensatory support. Another way might be if, uh, you know, two people met and when they met one of them was living in Vancouver and one of them was living in Toronto and they were well established and their families were in each of these cities and they decided that one of them was going to pick up from Toronto and move to Vancouver to live there. Uh, there's an element of sacrifice there. You've given up your job in Toronto, you've given up your friends, your maybe your home, uh, your family links and you're starting over new. So um, there is an element that maybe there should be some compensation for the sacrifices that are made there. Right. Um, sometimes parties might keep working. Uh, both might work, but one party might work a much lower earning job. So they are available to uh, pick up and drop off the kids from school because they have less work hours and their work hours are more flexible. So they could have earned a lot more, but instead they've decided to take a, a uh, lower paying job. So there's a lot of ways to get at this element of compensatory support. Um, interestingly enough, most of the time uh, lawyers are pretty reasonable when it comes to uh, elements of entitlement not always but usually there's a pretty quick consensus among lawyers whether or not there is an entitlement partially because a lot of times it's just clear on the face that there is and other times it's because people say well I think there is but I don't want to spend thousands of dollars fighting over this in court to then just be told there is an entitlement and then I have to pay support anyways so after you've met uh, the entitlement then we move on to what's called quantum or how much and the quantum is directly related to the income of the parties 
So I'll talk about how we figure that out in a few minutes. But essentially what we do is we put the, uh, the two spouses' incomes into a calculator. We then include the number of children that they have. We include things like if there's a special type of tax benefit, such as a rich disabilities of that nature so we get all the financial information and we put it into this calculator and the spousal support advisory guidelines have very complicated algorithms to determine what these are but it will generally produce three numbers one is low range one is mid range and one is high high range uh, and there are three different numbers that give you uh, an approximation of what support should be um what the calculator does though is a lot of people just look at the three numbers and say well i'm going to go with the middle number because that seems fair um if you look down below in the report that's produced there's something called the nitty or the indy uh and it stands for net disposable income or individual net disposable income and what the calculator is doing is it's saying okay okay we're going to lump the two incomes together to get a total and then we're going to look at the mandatory payments that each of these parties have. And by mandatory, I don't mean your mortgage or food. I mean uh, things like how much is going to CPP, how much is going to income tax, how much is coming off for child support. So the legally required payments that have to be made. And then it says, what is the net amount of income that is left over after that for each party? And the goal generally is to have the payor parent pay an amount to the payee parent, the recipient. So the recipient has about 40 to 45% of that total pot of the leftover income after all those deductions are made. And there's a few reasons for this. Uh, one of the reasons is we want to ensure that the payor is not uh, having to pay too much based upon their legal, legally required uh, costs of living. Um, the other reason is because, especially if there's kids involved, we don't want there to be a wildly different standard of living at dad's house versus mom's house. Because if one of them has a much higher standard of living, um, there's a fairly good chance that the kids are suddenly gonna wanna spend a lot more time at the more comfortable house where there's more Xboxes and TVs and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and we don't want to uh, have the children essentially picking favorites with mom and dad just because one of them doesn't earn more or earns less than the other one. So we balance that with this uh, nitty and that's an approximation of where we're at. Now, I should say the spousal support advisory guidelines are just that, they're guidelines. They are not mandated by law. Um, they are given a huge amount of deference by the courts and it's rare that the courts are are not accepting those but there are other ways to approach uh, the quantum of spousal support we can look at each other's budgets and determine well how much is actually needed for you to uh, meet your needs and the opposing party will pay you that much and we're not going to look at the nitty um, or things like that but more and more and more often, the courts are simply deferring to the spousal support advisory guidelines. Um, a senior lawyer once told me that uh, when you're negotiating, there's no 
point at starting with, you know, an extreme over here and an extreme over here when it comes to positions. She told me, well, even if the other side's starting way over here, start closer to where you think you should be and then only move a little bit because it's going to save time and you're going to seem like a more reasonable lawyer. And I thought that made a lot of sense. So when I'm looking at spousal support amounts, I tend to make recommendations that start pretty close to that mid-range number. Um, and honestly, in Alberta, that tends to be where the spousal support awards end up anyways. They can certainly be varied, uh, and courts have a lot of discretion to move away from that based upon you know, the conduct of parties. So I'm, I'm not talking about you know things like... Uh, whether or not there was an affair, uh, because we have no fault divorce in Canada. But I mean, if the other party has been um, refusing to agree to pay support for years, that might be a factor that weighs a little bit in the justice's mind when they come up with this number. Or if somebody is refusing to go out and actually get a job and they're just wanting to have support come in, then the justice might say, well, I'm going to lower this a little bit because they don't seem to be making any attempts to work towards self-sufficiency. Um, but generally, we come up with that, that mid-range amount. And uh, from there, we go on to the third part of the... Uh, spousal support process and that is duration so how long um it's great that i know i'm going to get fifteen hundred dollars a month but how long and uh there's a couple of different ways that the guidelines suggest that we look at this one way is based upon the age of the youngest child and this is not a terribly common way that lawyers look at this or even judges but the guidelines envision situations where primarily where the relationship has been of a short duration and a child has been produced as a result um, or children sometimes it's less important to base the time support is paid off the relationship and more to focus on the needs of the child so what it might what the courts might do is say well pay your parent, you have to pay spousal support um, for 16 years because you have a two-year-old child. So you have to pay support until they reach 18, even if your marriage was only a one-year marriage. And uh, that is quite rare. And that's why I'm starting with this first is because it's, uh, I want to let people know that this is an approach to it, but it's uncommon the much, much, much more common way to look at how long is spousal support paid is the duration of the relationship test. And what the guidelines say is that support should be paid for approximately somewhere between one half of the length of the time that the parties live together up to one to one of the amount of time that parties live together. So if there was a relationship and it doesn't matter if there was a marriage or, or when the marriage was, we look at when did they move in together? When did they stop living together? And if that was 10 years, then we're looking at support being payable at somewhere between five years and somewhere between 10 years. So one half of the cohabitation period to the same amount of time as the cohabitation period. Um, Alberta tends to be more conservative or our courts tend to be more conservative when, when making these awards. And they, they tend to... Um, make awards that are closer to that one half of the cohabitation period uh, when it comes to the duration. 
not always. I mean, every situation is unique and the courts are always wanting to know what factors are influencing this and, and you know, what is the need of the person? How long is it uh, reasonable to expect that it will take them to get on their feet and become self-sufficient? There's a lot of things that we have to consider when looking at this. Um, however, there is one other caveat here and that's not everybody wants to wait for you know if they've been together for 10 years nobody wants to wait five years to have all of the payments that are coming to them or sometimes people are just in such a high level of conflict that even making that monthly payment can be problematic so another way to do this is by making a lump sum payment so instead of a certain amount each month uh we say well we're going to um we're going to get you to make uh, just one big lump sum payment. So what we do is we say, okay, it's $1,500 a month times 12 months times five years. And if I had thought ahead, I would have done this calculation beforehand, but I didn't. So let's say that that's roughly um, 15000 a year times five years. That's a, let's say $75,000 in uh, spousal support that is owed if we do the calculation. Um, so that can be done, but there's one more little catch here, and it's that uh, the Income Tax Act throws a wrench into this whole thing. So the Income Tax Act says that if spousal support is being paid on a periodic basis, so that can be once a week, once a month, uh, once every six months, even once a year, um, then the support that is paid is tax deductible in the hands of the payor, and taxable as income in the hands of the person receiving it. So if we're making monthly payments, the payer is getting a big tax break. If we take the lump sum approach though, the CRE says that is not tax deductible to the payer and that's not income for the recipient. So the question is, well, why would the payor person ever wanna pay the full $75,000 because they, they're paying more, they're not getting benefit. So generally what we tend to do is we will then net that, that $75,000 amount down by an approximate percentage that would be paid in taxes. So generally it's about a third. So mm -hmm. take 75,000, we knock 25,000 off because that would have went to the government anyways. And then the payor parent would pay the recipient $50,000 instead of the 75. And this has two big upsides. Number one, the payor parent keeps the $25,000 in their pocket. They don't send it to Ottawa. It doesn't go to the government. And in theory, hopefully some of that savings is going to trickle down to the children. If there are children, then they're going to benefit. The recipient doesn't have to wait the five years to receive that full $75,000. And then they don't have to pay that $25,000-ish to the government in taxes. So they have the benefit of receiving great big pile of money up front, and then they can invest it, earn returns on it, or, or whatever it might be. Now, this lump sum approach really only works, though, if there's enough assets to do this, of course. If you have a situation where the parties are uh, underwater or, or there's not a lot of assets, um, of course, you know, somebody can't just magically make that 50000 appear. So oftentimes, it's the case that 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 isn't a practical option for the parties, but but it is something important to remember uh, that can be done. 
Um, before I get into disclosure, I'll just say the Divorce Act does give the court some guidance and instruction on what are we doing? Why are we giving spousal support? Why, why is this a thing? And there's a few things that the Act says that we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be accounting for the costs of the, the breakdown in the marriage and the increased expenses uh, and we're supposed to be factoring in the increased costs of childcare as well. We're supposed to be thinking about things such as what were the roles that the parties played during the marriage? And is there a uh, reason that somebody should be maybe compensated for a role that they played in the marriage, such as somebody who's a stay-at-home parent and performs uh, very valuable work, but who isn't compensated for it? Um, and the other thing that the Act is uh, very keen on is promoting self-sufficiency of the spouse receiving the support within a reasonable amount of time. So what that is can vary greatly uh, between people. So if somebody has a PhD and they work through the marriage and they're getting support simply because they, they gave up a good job somewhere to move across the country, well, they're, they're already on their feet in all likelihood. They're probably earning a good income. And even if the marriage was very long, they're not gonna need a lot of time to become self-sufficient. If somebody was working a, a minimum wage job uh, prior to the marriage, and then they were married and didn't work for 15 years, um, they're probably gonna need a little bit more time to get established and get on their feet and get some income coming in. And through no fault of their own, it's just that that's how the economy works. There's one more thing I wanted to say that I did forget about before going into disclosure, and that's the 20 year magic number. So when I talked about duration, I said, the awards are generally payable for one half of the cohabitation period to one to one for the cohabitation period. There's a big but here, and that's for relationships of 20 years or more. If you're in a relationship of that long, what the spousal support advisory guidelines uh, indicate is that the duration is, isn't going to be calculated at the time of the divorce or the separation. Support is going to be paid for an indeterminate period. Now, indeterminate does not mean forever. What indeterminate means is it's going to be paid until there's a major change in circumstances of one of the parties. So for example, if there's a long relationship and then a separation, the uh, payor does have the right to retire. So they might pay support, maybe if the separation occurred at 60, uh, they might pay for five years. And then at 65, they might say, well, I want to retire. And they do have the right to retire at a reasonable age. And then what we do is we will look at it again. We'll look, we'll have a review. We'll see, well, should support continue past 65? If it should, how much? Because the person's income has likely dramatically uh, decreased as a result of their retirement. If the recipient spousal support uh, is 40, so they, they were married for 22 years and then separated at 40, and then one year goes by where the payer is paying support, and then suddenly that recipient remarries, well, that too is a major change in life circumstances. So again, we come back to the review, and it doesn't, reviews don't mean we end it or increase or decrease it, it just means 
we have to look at it again. We have to think about what's changed and how does that reasonably affect the lives of the parties. So that's how duration works. So Josh, this is this is really fascinating and I'm so appreciative that you are spelling this out and and really describing because it's a mysterious, terrifying factor in divorce for people and I I'm also very happy that you brought up the 20 year factor because I had a question around that because of course in my mind I'm going like what <laughs> because I came uh, I was in a 30 year marriage and there was like no support was 6 years and I that's nowhere near half um and there isn't a you know I don't really feel there was an a case for that retirement was really that soon however there's you know there's no contact so I don't know and at that point didn't care <laughs> but it is interesting that there is allowance made for that because from I don't know if you can uh speak to the statistics on this but gray divorce or the the older um population is seeing the greatest increase in the number of divorces of any of the age groups is is the research that I've come across and so this is a this is a a concern for them and I and happy is. you address that and I, I can't um, give you numbers I don't know actual hard fast statistics on this but through my own practice, I have seen more and more of this happening over the last five and a half years. Um, I saw my first uh, older person who wanted to go through a divorce in my first year of practice. And when I met that person, I thought that, oh, this is a little bit un unusual. Like you've been together for a very long time. I, why, why would you want to do this? Not, not that it is any of my business, but these thoughts go through your head. And uh, it's, since then, it has seemed like this is more and more and more common. Um, you know, regarding your own situation with the six years following a, a 30 year separation, or 30 year marriage, battle, there's, there's a lot of factors that could come into play here. And, and one of the biggest factors too, that I, I didn't specifically mention is that unlike child support, Parties who are separating and divorcing are free to do whatever they want by agreement with spousal support. If you were in a one-year marriage and you guys agree that support is going to be paid for 20 years, there's nothing wrong with that if both the parties agree and they've had legal advice and they understand it. Likewise, if parties have been in a 30-year marriage and both say, well, you know what, I don't want support and the other one doesn't want to pay support, there's going to be no support. Um that's rare, <laughs> but um, but it, spousal support is nice because anything can be done by agreement. It's only where there's disagreement that we then look at the guidelines to say, well, how do the guidelines treat this? What do the case law or what does the case law say about this? And what's going to be a reasonable approach to um, to this? Now, I kept on mentioning at the start and throughout that I was going to talk about disclosure because throughout this whole thing, um, this has all been predicated upon we know how much the parties are making because we need to do that calculation and the algorithm needs to tell us the percentages. So when you first see a family law lawyer, 
unless there's something pressing like a, a safety concern or, or the children are missing or something like that, nine times out of 10, what the family law lawyer is going to do is, is start by uh, doing financial disclosure exchanges. And what that means is your lawyer is going to say, well, I need and there's a whole long list of items, but things like your last three years of income tax returns, your last three years of notices of assessment or reassessment, your last three pay stubs, your, um, if you have a, a corporation, your financial statements from the corporation, we're going to need your bank account information, your credit card information, and, and all these, these other things, these documents. And then we're going to send them over to your former partner's lawyer and ask that they send the same thing back. And financial disclosure is uh, not optional. If it's asked for, you must do it. The Alberta Rules of Court and the Alberta Family Law Act both have provisions in, in them that require uh, the exchange of financial disclosure during a separation. And the reason for that is because that's the information we use to figure out how much did you make, how much did I make, how much child support should be paid, how much spousal support should be paid. Now, for people who listen to my talk on child support, I mentioned that for the vast majority of people, this is relatively easy to do. Normally what we do is if somebody is employed in one job and they get a paycheck every two weeks or every month and they have a boss and they work for a company, then they get a T4 at the end of the year. And when they do their taxes, they indicate that as their income and maybe a little bit of other income for uh, maybe some investment income or some tax credits or what you have. But then we look at total income. So line 15,000 or until a few years ago, line 150. And that gives the total income of the party prior to taxes for the previous year. Um, and then we use generally use that number and we put it into the calculator for both parties and we get these results. It becomes a lot more difficult though when people don't earn conventional employment income. If a party is self-employed or if they have a uh, small privately held corporation, um, then things get a little bit more interesting because sometimes what people will do is they will try to write off a lot of expenses that are really work expenses or business expenses through their corporation. Or what they might do is they might leave a lot of uh, money in the corporation and then just say, well, I only took out $50,000 in uh, employment income from my corporation last year or $50,000 in dividend income. So I'm only going to pay child and spousal support based on $50,000, uh, despite there being $500,000 in the corporate bank account. And the law has a good way of getting around this. And what the law does is it allows income that's being held in a corporation like that to be imputed back to, to the person who claimed they only earned $50,000. It's a very fact-specific exercise, but we look at what, what are the needs of the corporation for the upcoming year and what's a reasonable amount of income to leave in there. So if in my fictitious scenario where there's 500,000 in the bank, maybe $100,000 is reasonable to leave in the corporate bank account. And then what we're gonna do is whether or not the money's pulled out of the account, we are on paper gonna take $400,000 out of that corporation, move it over to the personal income, 
where it's only claimed to be 50 and plunk it in there. And suddenly we're going to do calculations based upon uh, an income of $450,000. Um, this does lead me into uh, one additional area, which is you cannot get out of paying spousal support by just quitting your job. Um, there seems to be a prevailing uh, idea out there that I don't want to pay support, so I'm going to give up my $100,000 a year job, and I'm going to go work a minimum wage job at $31,000 a year, and I'm going to pay way less support. Or I'm going to quit my $100,000 a year job, and I'm just not going to work, and then I'm going to pay nothing. Unfortunately, life doesn't work like that, and neither does the law. If somebody has intentionally quit their job, we call that intentional unemployment. And if they left the $100,000 for the $30,000 a year job, we call that intentional underemployment. And in those situations, what the court can do is they can say, well, payor, we understand you don't want to pay support, and we cannot force you to go and get a higher paying job. But what we're going to do is we're going to make a court order that orders support be paid based upon uh, deeming your income to be $100,000. And if you don't want to work or don't want to get a higher paying job than $31,000, that's on you. But the support payments are going to be based on $100,000. So it does um, incentivize people to continue to work in a reasonable uh, position and for a reasonable income. Now, I should say, just to clarify, the courts aren't going to do that if you had a bona fide job loss through no fault of your own. Sometimes companies restructure, sometimes companies go under. And if you had an honest job loss, it's not your fault, um, you are not going to be treated in the same way as if you just quit. There is an expectation that you will find employment again within a reasonable amount of time, but that's very different than the court just saying, you quit your job yesterday, too bad, you're paying today based on a $100,000 income. When it comes to so owning your own company, and there might be a change, uh, and, and I know we, I brought this up during the other episode uh, concerning child support. Through the pandemic, there was a lot of chaos in the workplace and changes and pivots, and uh, it was a struggle. So how... How is that addressed when there are changes uh, in your own business? Um, on a case-by-case -case basis, right. Um, you know, a lot of the a lot of this is dealt with by asking why. You know, why why was there a huge change in the cash flow of a business? Was it because you have an oil and gas company and the market fell out of oil and gas as it sometimes does in Alberta. Well, that isn't a, a big, uh, th there, there's no fault on your end. So we're, we're likely going to then make an adjustment. That could be one of those major changes in circumstances that do warrant uh, a review and variation of the support order. The same thing with COVID. Um, I don't think anybody in 2019 was expecting the 2020 that we had coming in the corner. Uh, through no fault of somebody's own. Now, if a business decides that they're going to simply cut their hours in half because the owner doesn't want to work as much, that is the same, that will be treated in a similar fashion as intentional unemployment. 
Um, if there's a business that decides, you know, hey, we're, we're working in this very lucrative area, but we're suddenly going to make a hard left turn and we're going to go into this total different area that has high risk and we have no experience in this. Well, maybe that wasn't a terribly prudent decision on the part of the business owner. So maybe there's going to be a little bit of, of, of fault allocated there, but um you know, you're, you're free to run your business in, in a reasonable fashion, including taking reasonable risks. So in a case like somebody suddenly uh, going into a high risk area, well, we're going to look at the why in that too. You know, if somebody did that because they thought there was a real bona fide opportunity to make a large amount of money and it just turned out to be wrong, um, that's different than if the intention to do this was just because they were bored and wanted to change in scenery. Thanks for clarifying that. And I think the word reasonable is uh, open for definition in the courts, right? And that that can be a, a tricky time. But yes, on an individual basis, a lot of this can be, be determined. And, uh, you know, there might be more information requested, more documentation, that type of thing to determine what is reasonable. You know, in my first year of law school, I remember talking in, I think, every single class about what is reasonable. And uh, you're right. At the end of the day, a lot of our law is based upon what is reasonable. And, um, you know, if people can't agree on what reasonable is, that's a big part of the job of our justices. It's to say what's reasonable, what isn't. And I remember one class where we talked about um, reasonable is generally what the average person would believe but in some cases reasonable might be determined to be a, a belief or a position that nobody holds um when you're looking at things in a certain fact scenario or in a certain way if if, a, if an issue came up that nobody had really thought about before maybe reasonable is something that nobody's thought of before so it, it is a very gray area and uh, thankfully, we have some really, really great justices in our province who uh, who do try very, very, very hard to craft orders and judgments that are reasonable and based on reasonableness. They don't want to have the payor of child support or spousal support, um, you know, destitute and living under a bridge because they simply can't afford what the order requires. But they also don't want the recipient to be in a position of undue financial hardship. So they, they do try very hard to balance the competing interests here. And there's factors as well, different generations, different cultures that define, like maybe not define, but what reasonable uh, fits in these, in these different scenarios. So yes, it definitely does come down to uh, individual cases. Absolutely. If you have somebody who was in a relationship where, it was uh, either for cultural reasons or maybe um, a personality disorder on the part of one of the spouses where they were essentially um, required to stay in the home for the entire duration of the marriage and just do the homemaking. And they, they really had no experience paying bills or uh, uh, dealing with the government or the CRA or, or those, those types of life tasks well what's reasonable for them and the amount of support that they require um, is going to be different than somebody who who shared in doing all those types of things 
you know, we have files where, uh, because of unfortunately family violence, uh, one of the spouses has has effectively um, withdrawn the other spouse from from the day to day world. They have no experience with paying bills, with uh, knowing how to set up a new mailbox by going to the post office, or knowing how to register children in school by by calling the schools because they've been might so not even short. drive. They, they might not even drive. That's a great example. And if you have somebody that's been uh, in a relationship where they've been so controlled like that because of domestic violence, that's a very, very different scenario than, than a, a relationship where it has been a 50-50 partnership doing those things. Right. And technology comes to mind too. They may not know how to use a cell phone or have, have used a lot of technology. I mean, there's those extremes. Um Thank you so much, Josh, for the information that you've shared today. I think the pieces that come together, uh, and especially now, you know, you've summed it up talking about disclosure again, that, you know, people can start to draw a picture of what support they may consider uh, is going to be part of their divorce and how it's determined. And, you know, it's, it, it's done as fairly as possible. That is, I think is what resonates the the most with me is that the courts are there, you know, they, they seem like this evil entity, but they're there to help make this as, as fair as possible with the information that you provide to them. They, they certainly are. And they, uh, they do their absolute best to, to try to do that. I have never seen a justice um, who has, you know, try to be uh, vindictive or, or try to punish somebody by making these awards. That's uh, thankfully, um, it just doesn't happen here. We've got some, we've got great justices. We're trying hard to do what's fair. That's fantastic. Thanks so much, Josh. I appreciate you being here. Hopefully you heard something today that helps you wherever you might be in life. Do you have questions or a suggestion for a topic you want to know more about? Let me know. Check the show notes for all the contact information. Follow this podcast and find us on social. Know anyone who might find this information helpful? Be a friend and share it. And hey, thank you for hanging out with me today. Keep smiling that beautiful smile. The world needs your sunshine. It means a lot that you spend this time with us and meet our experts and professionals who can help you through divorce or separation. Please refer to our terms of service available on our website, divorcemagazinecanada.com. The link is in the show notes. Our disclaimer, divorce resource groups, blog, and all content, including our podcast, is intended to educate and provide quality, credible resource information. The contents should not be used as factual until consultation with the appropriate professionals for any guidance. Divorce Magazine Canada does not constitute endorsements for nor liability for any claims made in the presenting of this information.